always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas. Uh, today with episode 448, it is Friday, June 4th, 2010. And uh, today we're going to talk about permaculture practice and principles. Haven't really done an in-depth permaculture show in a while. Figured it was time to do that again and try to make it a bit different. Bring it all together and talk about it and talk about it in a way where it can be understood and kind of introduced in a way where you understand why permaculture is a survival topic versus uh, what we would call, I guess, a hippie topic. I guess it can be a hippie topic, but it's definitely uh, not founded by a hippie, and it definitely has some very um, survival-oriented tenets and um, philosophies in it. And the original person that founded it, I'll tell you about him today, in just a minute after we do our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. And sponsor of the day number one today is the Survival Seed Bank from Solutions from Science. So what is the survival seed bank? Is it a bunch of seeds you're going to go out and plant tomorrow afternoon? Uh, not really. You could, but that's really not what it's for. The survival seed bank is a group of seeds, enough seeds, in fact, to plant a one-acre crisis garden. They're all heirloom variety, open-pollinated seeds, so you can save the seeds from harvest to harvest, season to season, and reuse them. But the best thing about them is the way that they're sealed and stored so they can be stored for long-term use in the future. With storage life up to 20 years or more, depending on the conditions the survival seed bank is kept in. Think of them like mountain house foods uh, that come in a big number 10 can. They taste great. You could open them tomorrow. They work just fine. Those pork chops in that number 10 can would be great on the grill tomorrow, just like a pork chop out of the deep freezer. But the Mountain House can comes at a premium cost because it's designed to store without refrigeration or without freezing for 20 years. That's how the Survival Seed Bank works. It's a way to make sure that you have seed stores available for yourself into the future. Uh, next up today is ShelfReliance.com, one of the most innovative uh, methods of storing canned foods I've ever seen. Uh, it provides natural rotation, sturdy built units from very small units to very large units. I have a Harvest 72 that I did a uh, review on. It's a six foot tall unit that holds over 500 cans and it is a beautiful unit. Uh, one of the best things I've ever seen honestly as far as uh, being able to follow the philosophy of eat what you store and store what you eat. Uh, I'll post a review uh, that I did on YouTube of that, uh, that product today for you to take a look at in the show notes. But I really recommend you check out ShelfReliance.com. And remember, if you're a member of the Support Brigade, uh, you get 7% off every single thing that you ever purchase from ShelfReliance.com. And they have a lot more than just shelves, so check out their website today. 
Uh, moving on from there, check out our gear shop. We do have a French press tumblers we're taking orders on. Pre-orders and the discount that came with that are over. Uh, we're now taking regular orders on them. Uh, they ended up being black and silver instead of silver and black, and we actually think they look better. Um, we're really excited about that product. We also have some other new stuff on the way, so check out the gear shop. You'll find a link to the gear shop, at, shop and to our sponsors at the Survival Podcast. Dot com As always, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. Do that. You'll get exclusive content available only to members, including over $100 worth of free ebooks, 20 videos that were put together by me uh, that are available only to our members, uh, discounts from about 20 other members. And the most important thing, folks, you'll be supporting the work we do here at the Survival Podcast. Uh, and that will be done at 20 cents an episode is what it comes out to if you join for a year at $50. Actually, it's something like 19.3 cents. So every time you get on here, if you think to yourself, hey, you know what, that guy poured it out for me and it was worth 20 cents, consider becoming a member of the Support Brigade to support the work we do. Basically, it works this way. I provide the content. You decide whether or not you want to pay for it. I think that's the way forward with business in the future in the entertainment industry. All right, with that, let's go ahead and take care of the uh, uh, the, the main topic. Let's, let's, let's talk about permaculture and what permaculture is, what it isn't, uh, some of the misconceptions about it, and... Uh, so, some other things like that. I know that about two years ago when I started doing this show, I uh, I looked at permaculture and I saw it as being a different type of agriculture. Basically, I saw permaculture was, you know, when you planted something, it would come back every year. That was permaculture. And when I went out and planted a tomato, that was agriculture. I, I really didn't even understand permaculture yet. I was just learning like many of you. And as I started doing the show, I started looking for more and more ways to bring value and education to the audience in things that would help you live your better life today, even if nothing went wrong, but would sustain you through hardship should it ever come. I also looked at disaster uh, for the human race, not the, the acute disaster like a hurricane or a, a, an earthquake, but disaster of we're going to run out of things, we're reaching a peak in society, where there's only so much longer we can sustain population growth and extraction to a, to a point where we're going to get into shortages. Uh, you know, a lot of people are big on peak oil, and I think, yes, yeah, sooner or later, some are going to have to contend with, but we may have to contend with peak water first. And I don't mean peak water, turn your faucet on, does water come out? I mean peak water, is there enough water to keep the crops alive because of the way that agriculture is being done? So I started looking more and more into permaculture. And on the surface, I saw kind of uh, an eco-hippie or bush-hippie type uh, uh, vantage point. But that was very much a surface view. As soon as I dug into it, found out its history, its origins, where it comes from, what it's all about, and I began to deeply research read about and practice the principles, I realized that, that permaculture was actually the solution to a lot of those peak issues. Not all of them, but a lot of them. The permaculture was not just about growing an apple tree or growing anything. Permaculture was about understanding how to make society's culture permanent. It wasn't just about growing things. It was about how to build houses. It was about how to avert disaster. There's permaculture principles uh, and techniques that are used to help prevent forest fires from spreading. 
for instance. So one of the biggest disasters that this country's been through has been multiple forest fires over the years. Uh, I remember a few not so long ago, and I remember forest fires being a big issue back when I was a kid. I'm sure before I was born they were there. Well, there's, there's answers to those problems and techniques uh, of forest management with permaculture. Uh, permaculture is not just a way to grow a tomato or a grape or uh, anything you plant in the ground, but it's also better ways to grow livestock. Uh, not just for eggs, if we're growing chickens, but for the pot. Uh, permaculturists are not made up exclusively of vegetarians. In fact, I'd say most of them are actually quite carnivorous, uh, and I know the founder was. Let's talk real brief about how the whole thing started. There was this guy named Bill Mollison, grew up in Tasmania, and, uh, you know, this guy was far from a, a bush hippie. He was actually a hunter. Uh, he grew up in the high hills of Tasmania, and the way he put it is back then, especially in the wintertime, you had to be a carnivore. There wasn't much else to eat other than animals up in the uh, in the high mountains. So he grew up as a hunter and eventually went to Australia to look for work, as most young men do when there's not work where they are. They go somewhere else. And he got a job working as a logger. And this is back in the days when, uh, you know, his initial start anyway, when logging was all about the man and uh, hand tools and maybe some chainsaws, but it wasn't the days where these big machines, the guy just rode through and just cut them down with like a giant backhoe thing with two giant chainsaw things and a, and a gripper on it. This is back when men physically did the work. And for years he did this work, backbreaking, brutal, unfulfilling work. And one day he said he was sitting around and he asked all of the people that were there working with him if anybody owned a house. And the answer was no. None of the people he worked with owned a house. And, of course, they were cutting these trees down to feed the mid-century boom, the 1950s boom of construction all over the world as suburbs became the new normal. Uh, not just in America, but in Australia, in England, uh, in, in Europe, and in many countries throughout the, the planet, that construction boom needed the death of millions of trees. So... He started to think about the fact that people that did the work could never actually afford, the, the work would never afford them the opportunity to own what they were supplying. It's the same concept of the people that work in a hotel they could never afford to stay in or work in a store they could never afford to buy things from. That's where he realized he was at. And he looked at it and he also realized the unsustainability of it. The first couple of years, it seems like there's so many trees, and as they're cutting, they're not even making a dent in the forest. And after several years, and as the crews grow, you start to realize there's less forest now than when you started. You've only been at this a few years. How much longer can you go before there's nothing left to cut? And, you know, that's when sustainable forestry starts coming along, and you're watching a guy replace a, a, a 150, 200-year-old tree with a pine tree that's going to be harvested in 15 years. So he kind of tweaked, you know, and I, I've had that experience as a young man myself and said, you know what, I, I don't want to do this anymore. This is not my way. And he went and kind of did the bush hippie thing for a while. He went lived in the forest for, I think, five years and decided he was going to find a better way to live and relatively quickly found that way and looked at the forest as a teacher and said, if we look at the forest and see everything the forest does on its own, without help from mankind, and we see how productive that forest is, well, then we can take that and emulate it and use that model. And instead of going to war with nature, we can use nature as an ally. 
And we can produce everything that we need by following the example that we're given from the teacher that is the forest. So once he proved that concept to himself, he sat there for a while and enjoyed it, and then he realized, you know, I'm not really accomplishing anything. That all of the mess that I left behind is still out there and getting worse. And in his own words from a documentary I watched, this is the non-hippie part of, of permaculture. This is the warrior side of permaculture. When I listened to this man that had to be in his 80s at this point say, I decided I could either sit there and let the bastards roll over everything, or I could go back and fight the bastards. And fortunately for us, Bill, Bill Mollison's viewpoint of fighting was through demonstration and education. To come out and demonstrate these techniques really work, here's how they really work, and to educate millions of people around the world how to do them. And the permaculture model today is really being taken up more in third world nations than in first world nations. They're going into these impoverished societies and saying, look, you have almost nothing left. And folks, you don't know how it works in the third world. Most of you don't realize where it's, what the problems there really are. They're not the problems that we're told. They're not poor people that can't figure out anything. They're people that have been, have their land taken from them. The major nations in the world, including ours, have gone into these nations, loaned them money through the IMF, gotten them into a point where they're deeply in debt, and then the only way that they can pay back the debt nationally is to nationalize agriculture and grow corn and soy and wheat. That's it. And, of course, they get their seeds and their chemicals from Monsanto and Conagra and these, and these big conglomerates like that. And what happens is all the land gets taken up for mass production agriculture, and it's the death of the small-time farmer. In America, we look at that and go, that's terrible because the farmer has to go to the city and get a job, and he loses the farm. In the third world, people die. So when they go into these societies, they only have these little plots of land left between their huts and their houses, and they say, look, this is all you need. We'll show you how to produce for yourself livestock and, and, and agriculture here. Those people are receptive. And it's been, it was, to me, it was the original viral marketing. Before there was an internet, there was permaculture spreading across the planet. And most of us here in the, in the civilized world, where we haven't done without, we missed it. And this is why it's a survival topic, folks. It was the answer to a, 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 the problem that was killing people throughout the world. So if we can look at a system and say, this system's work throughout the world to take people that were on the edge of starvation and put food back in their bellies, maybe, just maybe, we can learn something from it. And God forbid the crash comes, the big one. It's, if we have these systems in place for ourselves, it can help sustain us. But if we can get enough of these systems in place, maybe we can prevent it, or at least parts of it. Because to me, if you're going to be involved with survival planning and disaster planning, your goal should be as much to head it off as to respond to it. In other words, if we're going to say we're worried about a fire burning our home down, we're not just going to have fire extinguishers, the number for the fire department, and an evacuation plan, and smoke detectors. Those are all great things. But maybe it would be also smart to make sure that we weren't piling up papers next to the furnace. Right? That we were using insulation that wasn't kindling. That if there was a fire retardant that could be sprayed on the more vulnerable parts of our home, and that does exist now, that maybe we did that. 
so that we take a preventive measure. So if all the preventive measure fails, we still have the reactive measure. But we don't have just the reactive measure. That's what permaculture is about. It's about having a way to respond to the disaster, but it's also about having a proactive stance to try to prevent it from the first place. Now, to me, what made Bill Mollison a genius was the amount of thought that went into it. I, one of the documentaries I watched on permaculture, one of the, I think it was Jeff Lawton, stated, in, a, in, a, in an average agricultural system, a person might spend 12 hours working and then do one hour thinking. But in a permaculture situation, a person will spend 12 hours of thought before doing one hour of work. Sounds like laziness, but it's not. It's about efficiency and effectiveness. And that comes right from the heart of it at the very beginning as, uh, as Mollison put this process together. And he came up with 12 design principles that I'll go over with you now that really show you the in-depth thought that went into this and the sustainability that went into this and the care that went into this beyond... I just want to save the planet and everybody hold a flower, which I think is what some people think of when they hear a term like permaculture. It's a very um, robust system that's designed to solve problems. It's not a way to save the whales or save the seals. That's a byproduct. That's a secondary product. The first product is to do no harm to the, the land that sustains you and to make sure that it provides for you to get something back. So going through these principles, the very first one I think is maybe the most important one for you to get if you're not out there doing any of these things yourself yet. And that is to observe and interact. And when I started going through these principles, I kind of put them into a, t a context that may, would make sense to my audience. And my response to that one, or my, my secondary way of looking at observe and interact, is to be a part of things. You know, folks, we live in an Internet world, and it's great, and it does so much for us. It lets us share information. I'm talking to you, and, and I guess it's about twelve to 14,000, depending on the day now, other people all over the world right now. I'm talking not just to people in America. I'm talking to people in Iraq. I'm talking to people in Afghanistan, I'm talking to people in Australia, I'm talking to people in Sweden, the United Kingdom, Puerto Rico, Brazil, Argentina. And these are just places I'm absolutely sure of. Germany. God knows how many countries this show is really hurting. I know it's not hurting in China because they block me there. I'm censored in China. I'm actually proud of that, though I wish those you know, 2 billion people had access to me. That would be great. But that Internet... And forums, and social media, and Twitter, and all of the great things that it brings, brings the other side of, of the sword, the, the, the two-edged sword. And that is, we've, we've opted out of actually doing things. You cannot be a permaculturist and opt out. You have to be involved. You have to interact. Interaction in the garden is, I go into the garden, and I see this insect. And I look, and I see the insect is eating the leaf of a plant that... I'd prefer that he not eat. But instead of immediately quashing that insect, I might observe for a while and see, is there a predator that eats that insect? Or I might go do research instead of waiting while he continuously eats my leaf and say, what eats this thing? And I might find out that that little tiny insect is a leaf miner and that he's highly predated on by things like lacewings and ladybugs. So then I know instead of going and getting the chemicals to destroy 
that I need to increase the habitat for lacewings and ladybugs in my garden. And that's just one level observe and interact. Another observation and interaction might be, last year I planted pole beans. This year I planted amaranth in the same plot. Some of the pole beans fell to the ground last year, and I didn't know that they did. A few of them sprouted and grew as volunteers, and they began to coil and, and spiral up the amaranth. Hey, gee, the Indians did this with, with corn, and they called it a three sisters garden when they added squash to it, but amaranth makes a good trellis for my beans too. Observe and interact by being a part of things. I'll find new solutions through the act of observation, as long as I'm an active, not a passive observer. And this transcends into all areas of life. I want you to understand, this is not just about the garden. This is about the entire world. This is about your survival planning. This is about your lifestyle planning. This is about your workplace. It really is. Observe and interact in the workplace looking for the places where solutions are presented to you. The next one, catch and store energy. Catch and store energy. So that could be an, a, a true energy project, solar energy. We get a solar panel. We get a battery bank to supply electricity. And the sun comes up in the morning and it goes down in the evening. And it does it every single day. But at night it's not there. So if we don't catch that energy and store it, we don't have it available in a time where it's not uh, present, when the, when the source is not present. Now that could be in a 24-hour interval. It could be in a seasonal interval. So another way of catching and storing energy is we plant food uh, and grow food that is very storable, like beans and corn, which can be dried and stored for large amounts of time. Or even a lot of vegetables can be dehydrated and stored for large amounts of time. Uh, or we can grow a, a beef cow. And when that cow is ready for slaughter, some of that maybe is used as fresh beef or frozen, but that's not a real effective way. But if we jerk it, smoke it, make biltong out of it, now we're storing that energy for later use without additional expenditures of energy. What does this remind us of? How about food storage? So while the food is plentiful and there's plenty of food energy available, we can go down to Tom Thumb or Kroger or Albertsons or whatever stores near you, Safeway, and you can buy all the food you want and you bring it home. If you bring it home in abundance, you take that energy surplus and you store it. What founding principle of the Survival Podcast does that sound like? Be an ant, not a grasshopper. Look for the overlap as I go through this today, folks. Every one of these 12 principles permeates every part of your life. It's not just about alternative energy. It's not just about agriculture. Where else can you catch and store energy? Where else is there a surplus that can be set aside for future use instead of wasted or squandered? How about money? Do you realize that this principle applies to money? Catch and store energy? While you have a job, while you're working, don't go into debt. That's expending more energy than you have. Unsustainability. Once you've killed the debt, work harder than you've ever worked before. Save more than you've ever saved before. Build up a store of money. Money is energy. I know you don't get that. I know it doesn't make sense. I know they don't freaking teach that in our schools. 
But money is energy. It's actually a symbol for energy. It works this way. Collectively as a society, we've agreed that there's a certain value to a $20 bill. We've also agreed because of stupidity to let that value decrease over time. That's called inflation. But at least there is a value there as long as the society is held together. So we decided that 20 is a unit of energy. And it works this way. You go and spend energy through work, whether it's as an entrepreneur or as an employee. In return for your energy, you get a symbol for your energy that's called money. And you can use that to barter in the economy for the things that you want. So this principle tells you how to manage your financial life, even though it's about how to manage a small farm. Interesting, isn't it? Catch and store energy. And if we're really smart, we take expendable energy and we convert it into long stored energy. So here's an example of that. We go out and we harvest corn. And we want to keep a portion of it for fresh use right away. And we want some of it to work long term. So long term, maybe we, we decob, you know, cut some of it off the cob and we dehydrate it. And that corn could last us 20 years now and be just as nutritiously valuable to us in the future 20 years from now as it is today. Every bit of the vitamins and, and, and minerals and nutrients and flavor can be there for 20 years with a dehydration. Where if we freeze it, it's got a one-year lifespan, and it begins to degrade. And if we leave it fresh, it begins to degrade almost immediately. We need to eat it very quickly. We need to use it. We need to put it into our bodies. right? Well, with cash, we can put the money into a bank account and let it sit there and begin to degrade. Or we can convert it to something like gold or silver that 20 years from now will hold its value for us. This is an investing principle. It's a lifestyle principle, it's an occupational principle, it's an agricultural principle, it's a livestock management principle. It permeates the entire sphere of life. And it takes something that we've made unsustainable, debt, and fiat currency, and turns it into long-term value stored energy. Awesome, isn't it? Uh, next one, obtain a yield. Obtain a yield. See, this is when I, when I started going into this stuff, and I, I read this principle. I went, okay, this is not hippie stuff, because it's not, hey, man, profits like evil. No. It, what Mollison realized, if we're going to go tell people how to get, how to be successful with gardening and agriculture, that there's people out here that we call farmers that feed the world. They need to make a profit, or they're not going to work. They'll go out of business. Or they'll, they'll fall back and use the chemicals, the sprays, and the machinery. Do we either need to make them sustainable and profitable, or it's not going to work? They have to make a profit. So I came with the, the survival podcast version of Principle 3. Get an ROI on your efforts. Get a return of investment. So if we're going to come up with a way to run your 20-acre small farm, we need to make you more profitable small farmer, with your system that you're going to put into place. And if we don't do that, you're not going to succeed, so either you're going to go away, and your 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 20-acre farm is going to become a subdivision with 200 freaking houses on it, like an infestation, and we'll lose that valuable resource, or the Monsanto salesman is going to sell you GMO corn and GMO soy, and you're going to grow one crop after the other. 20 acres of soy, 20 acres of corn, 20 acres of soy, 20 acres of corn, and you're going to destroy your land and turn it fallow. So we have to make 
this system work better. So permaculture is not just about how to grow 20. It's, in fact, you would never grow 20 acres of corn. You would never grow 20 acres of soy. You might go grow corn and you might grow soy, but you would grow dozens, if not hundreds of crops, each providing its own yield. So that if there was a bad year for corn or a bad year for soy, you still had a profit. It's a diversification of the investment of labor and the investment of time. And some of the things that you'd be planted on those 20 acres would be perennial that wouldn't require as much effort from you year after year. So that 20-acre farm that was just a square and straight lines has now become an overlapping, multi-layered system. A little bit of native forest is there now to provide habitat. A, a small food forest is there that provides fruits and nuts. A layer that is vines and climbers and a herbaceous layer. And there's fruits and there's vegetables. And there's dozens and dozens of different things. And the harvest is now spread out across the entire year instead of combined to a, a single uh, point in time or a small point in time or two points in time during the year. So that there's always something coming in. There's always something providing um, financial return. If you look at this as a, a financial principle, what it's saying is instead of just putting all your money in a retirement account and hoping it's there for one harvest at the end of your life, that your money should be working for you throughout your life, be accessible to you for, throughout your life, and have multi-vehicles that it's in. It shouldn't just be in a 401k or an IRA and a bunch of mutual freaking funds, right? That's monoculture with your money. Just like monoculture, monoculturists are idiots. Thousands of acres of corn, and they're worried about pests. Of course they have it. And then, and then America loses half of its net worth overnight in the recent crash, 2008, that I told you was coming. It's a getaway from. And we had monoculturists in our financial sector. We're well diversified with stocks. You're not well diversified with, as long as it's all stock, how the hell are you diversified? So we make sure that our investments are spread in multiple vehicles and in multiple asset classes so that some of our money is in real estate, not just the house we live in, not overpriced real estate that's unsustainable, but small pockets, multiple locations. So if one fails, we can go to another one. We make sure that some of our money is in gold, some of our money is in silver, some of our money is in just plain old money even though it degrades in time. Do you eat fresh vegetables? Some of your money needs to be money because you're going to spend it in the next year. There's no point in having it tied up into anything. It's like a fresh vegetable. It's the same thing, folks. The next principle is apply self-regulation and accept feedback. If you don't accept feedback, you got a real problem. And uh, what that means is, to me, and then what I changed it to, is don't kill the golden goose. And with this again, let's examine this principle in a couple areas. Out in the garden, um, apply self-regulation, accept feedback. We look at a piece of land and we've planted it intensely and it's growing very well. At some point, we start to see the yields in that piece of land cave in. They, they, they start to decline. Well, we're asking too much from it. So we need to stop planting it so intensively and back off how much how much we're actually planting there. And we need to bring in new new organic matter and new compost. We can't suck the very life from the land. We have to take a step back and apply a self-regulation to it. We also have to look at the land and go, we've got 20 acres, but not all 20 acres is going to produce food, right? The land itself needs things. 
so we may grow crops that are only there to provide organic matter for the soil. We may take parts of that land and put it completely isolated, 100% wilderness, even if we have an acre and it's only a couple hundred square feet that we're, we're doing that with. So there's some place for wild things to retreat to so we don't stomp them out of the area. In all things, we need to look at, are we taking too much? Are we asking too much? Accept the feedback that the land will tell you you're going too far. When the farmer plows the field straight line for the fifth year in a row, and instead of soil being turned over, dust flies in the air, and you pick up the earth and you look at it, and it looks like sterile medium from a laboratory, that's the earth saying, hey, dude, hey, you're screwing it up. I can't do this for you anymore. Quit throwing fertilizer on me. You're killing every living creature inside of me. There's nothing left here. I'm a sponge now. Please fix me. But modern agriculture just keeps plowing along, just keeps making straight lines, just keeps destroying the soil. Because we don't accept the feedback. We don't self-regulate. But in your backyard, you self-regulate because you want your backyard to look nice. You want to be able to sell your home someday, maybe. So it's natural for us to self-regulate. And that's what happens. The smaller the system we work on, the more self-regulation we tend to apply. Because we are more quick to see the, 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 the problems created when we don't do it. But this applies to everything else in life, folks. Think about self-regulation. Think about how many places in the world we need to be self-regulating. Down to turning off the light switch when you leave the room. Again, I could care less about the polar bears and Al Gore's global warming crap. But there is a finite level to the energy that we can produce. Even if you have the, the money to spend, why waste it? That money could be going, if it's a dollar you save, that dollar could be going for your future instead of leave a light on while you're not there. And there's a million places. I bet you if you look in your business, if you're an employee, if you have any level of management input, if you have any level of input with management, or if you're an entrepreneur running your own business, I bet you you'll find places in your business if you would self-regulate, the business would be more healthy, more vibrant, and grow more. I bet you if you look at your family and your lifestyle in your home, if you would self-regulate certain things, observe, accept the feedback, realize this makes the family upset, this doesn't, you would have a more fulfilling, sustainable family life. Permaculture is deep stuff, isn't it, folks? It really is. Um, the next one, use and value resources. Um, to me, this means become efficient to become independent. To the permaculturist, that means that when we look at something in the garden, we need to realize that it has a value, and we need to use it to its value. In other words, again, it's not, oh, I'm not going to touch it, man. I want to let it be, right? It's not the hippie crap. It really isn't. It's, hey, there's a chicken. It's a resource because it does a lot of things. Yeah, it produces eggs, but also produces feathers. Those can actually be thrown into the compost. Uh, they actually provide protein in the soil, which helps some of the soil organisms thrive better. But they do more than that. We put them into a greenhouse environment where they have access to the greenhouse, or at least confined access to the greenhouse, and they, you know, they produce CO2. So now they're helping support the plant life inside the greenhouse. Isn't that cool? Right? But one day we might go out, pick one up, and chop his little chicken head off, pluck him, slice him up in pieces, 
roll him in some homemade cornmeal, and fry his butt in some homemade pig lard. Sounds great, doesn't it? He's a resource. He's designed to be used, tempered with things like self-regulation. If I go fry up all my chickens, I have no more eggs, I have no chicken manure for fertilizer, I have no feathers, I have no CO2. I have to do this in a sustainable way. But it is still something that is of value and a resource to be utilized. Take this to the business world. How many employees are under, underutilized? How many people in, in, in jobs are not valued for what they could be bringing to the company if they were given additional responsibilities? How many children aren't fully valued in their homes and are not given enough responsibility to be responsible for the home? Permaculture goes through culture. It's not permanent agriculture. It's permanent culture. It's changing the way we think. It's not telling you what to do. If you'll notice, everything I give you is an example. This is what you could do. This is what could be done. The principles of permaculture are written in stone. And they're expanded upon. And they will be added to but not taken from. When you go take a course, you learn these, these principles the same way, no matter who teaches it, no matter who instructs it. But what you do with it is yours, and that's what makes it liberating. Permaculture to me is one of the most liberating things ever created, because I give you the principles, and you do with them as you see fit, including if you decide to do nothing. But to me, when you have tremendous knowledge, and that's what you're gaining when you hear these things, not because they're from me, these aren't my principles, these are the principles of a man that lived in the forest for five years and said, teach me. I'm just repeating them and changing them and making them more understandable. I'm using them this way. I run my show now from a permaculture mindset. I make sure I get an ROI, but I value my resources and I apply self-regulation. So I didn't do that real good at the beginning. One of you guys would write me some nonsensical email and I'd ball you out. I'm not real big on that anymore. I apply some self-regulation, right? Value every single listener. That I've done from day one. But now I understand the value behind it, the meaning behind it, the way that it works. That's what's so awesome about permaculture. You use these principles as you see fit. Number six, produce no waste. Now, to me, now we're getting into a point where we start to even feel a little bit more, you know, the, the whole recycling and, and stuff like that. There's nothing wrong with recycling, folks. The shit hits the fan. You'll recycle every single thing you have. You'll throw nothing away until you're absolutely sure there's no more benefit from, you, from, from it. But drive through our neighborhoods the night before trash day and see how much the American society throws away. We take an entire swaths of land and turn them into nothing but landfills because of America's insatiable appetite for the creation of garbage. The permaculture says, stop producing the waste. At least examine the waste. How many things are there in that waste that could be used if you just looked at the waste differently? I changed that principle for the Survival Podcast to make use of everything. Make use of everything you can until it's absolutely exhausted. So, how much of America's garbage is food? And I understand it may be food that went bad. You don't want to eat it anymore. But how much of it is vegetable matter? The potatoes that didn't get finished last night. They got the potato that sat in the closet too long and started to, you know, to, to, to get nasty. 
the, 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 the peppers that sat in the back of the drawer that mom forgot about, that, yeah, we're not going to eat those now. Well, all that stuff could be composted. It doesn't need to be in a plastic bag sitting on our curb. How much of that stuff is thrown away by our grocery stores because it's just in the store too long and nobody buys it. They don't get their just-in-time inventory right. All of that stuff could be composted. While America watches its topsoil erode and decay, while America's farmland, while America's heartland goes from being the most fertile land in the world to becoming the most sterile land in the world, and go look at the, the earth at a farm somewhere, a modern farm today, Pick that dirt up and put it in your hands and compare it to the dirt in your own backyard garden. You'll see exactly what I mean. While that occurs, we throw the solution away. Because all of that organic matter could be becoming compost. And that compost could replace all of those chemicals that we're using to fertilize our crops. And that way, every year, farmland would become a little more fertile instead of a little less fertile. The farmer that plows down all of the corn after it's been harvested... And it has it trucked away. It doesn't really make a lot of sense, does it? It's extracted all of that great stuff from the earth, all those minerals and nutrients. It's collected all that solar energy, and it's discarded. And I'll ask you again, in your life, in your family, in your business, where are there things that are being wasted that could be better utilized? If we start to think with these principles, we start to find, again, individual solutions for ourselves. You and I can both follow these 12 principles. To the outside observer, we would be living entirely different lives because it would be based on our individual choices within them. But when you and I talk, we would find that we're living remarkably similar lives. We've just made different choices, but our principles are principles in common. We used to have that in America. Remember, America used to have principles that were uniquely American. Folks, they were never uniquely American. That's why we lost them, because we were lied to. Those principles were uniquely human. And in our arrogance, they were taken from us. This is just one way to start to reclaim them. The next one is design from patterns to details. Yeah, design from patterns to details. And this means, from an agricultural standpoint, stop it with the straight lines and the circles. I know that's the way that the diesel-powered irrigator goes in a circle and makes those pretty circles we see from an airplane. And they look beautiful from an airplane. You get up in an airplane, you look down, it's like a patchwork quilt, and there's a square there and a green circle there and a green circle there. They don't look pretty when you stand right next to them because they're destroying the planet. They really are. They absolutely are. It's part of why we're not going to be able to feed the population of this planet 25 years from now. It's part of why there's people hungry today. It's only going to get worse. The cost of food is only going to get higher. The, the difficulty in feeding our nation and feeding the world is only going to get more complicated. And that's part of why. But the permaculturist looks at nature and says, what is the pattern? And emulates the pattern. They look at the circle and say, well, the circle actually is useful. But not with one thing in it. What can go in the center? What can go on the outsides? How can we build a multi-layer system so that the center or the back is the highest and the front facing the sun is the lowest? And that this one area that used to produce one thing, wheat, now produces 200 different things that all sustain and support each other. That's designing from patterns to details. I changed that principle to make it a little more clear to be 
Be an artist and step back for a longer view. Think about the way that when we look at a garden up close, if you, if you look at a flower garden, for instance, with a whole bunch of different flowers in it, and you stand very, very close to it, you only see maybe one or two of the plants. And the individual flowers are pretty, but they just, you know, it could be just a pot with a flower. But when you step back and you look at a large flower garden, then you see its true beauties. You see the way that things interact with each other, the different heights, the different colors, the different textures. Well, when we grow things, we need to do that. When we set up a farm, even the, the livestock portions of a farm, we need to do that. We need to examine how do these things connect to each other. And how can we put the pattern together so that it builds strength from the very fact that it is a pattern. And these are all things that can be done. And we can do them in other parts of our life again. What if we apply this principle to the world of business and we start to look at how we can interlink the components of a business based on their patterns and where they best overlap and where they both best interact with each other? What if we start looking at outward at the other businesses that our business works with? We say, who are our suppliers? Who are our customers? How do we create patterns of distribution that are most valuable to our, our vendors, that are most valuable to our customers? Instead of worrying about what appears to be most efficient on the surface, what derives the greatest satisfaction for all of those involved? We do that and we start to build sustainability. We build robustness. We can do that in nature, we can do that in our families, we can do that in our homes, we can do it in our backyards, we can do it with our farms. But it all, it all revolves around just taking a step back and realizing that there is a design component to everything in life. It is not just about throw this here and throw that there and throw it at the wall and see if it sticks. It's about everything has a place that it needs to go in our system. And again, I don't tell you where to put it. I don't tell you put your corn here and your apple tree there. You look at your own property. You look at the energy flow around your property. Where do the winds mainly come from? What is your solar exposure like? What is your soil like? What is the slope of the land? What is the source of your water? Where is your back door? How far do you have to walk to get to the apple tree? How far do you have to walk to get to the cornfield? How often will you go to the apple tree? How often will you go to the cornfield? And then you make your own decision. Founded on common principles and common observations. But you build it for your life, not mine. So I might come in and go, I would do this and this and this, and you say, I really don't care what you would do. I've built and I've designed this system. I am this painting's artist. That's what this principle is all about. And again, it permeates every aspect of human existence, if we will allow it to. The next one, integrate rather than segregate. And I, I changed that one immediately. As soon as I read that, I went, that's an army principle. Understand the power of teams. So in the garden, instead of having the cornfield and the wheat field and the soy field and the rye field, we go in and we say we have tomatoes. And amongst those tomatoes are marigolds that don't produce anything for us to eat, but they're highly repellent to the pest of the tomato. We also have onions, which do provide us something to eat, provide additional repellency, uh, to the insect pests that would generally plague the tomato plant. We plant basil, and that also brings a lot of beneficial insects that predate on the, the pests of the tomato plant, but it also infuses the tomatoes with basil flavor just by being planted there. And now I've built this integrated system in my garden where I, instead, of, instead of having rows and rows of nothing but tomatoes, I have this plethora of things growing together. 
And I can do the same thing with every crop that I'll ever grow. Uh, original concept, Native American Three Sisters Garden, circle of corn, beans growing up the corn, squash on the ground, corn providing support for the beans, beans providing nitrogen for the nitrogen intensive using corn, squash providing a living mulch to help keep the moisture in the mound. Teamwork. Tell me that doesn't apply to your household, your business, your work. Everything that we do, your church, your charities, your community involvement, that if we take and instead of we segregate people, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be the, you know, the, the old, when you hear segregation in people, you think of the 1960s and back, and you think of racial segregation. Yeah, that's a problem too. But it's not just about segregating races. It's about segregating people based on occupational specialty. Management's here, and the lower peons are over here, and upper management's here. And they don't interact with each other in a company. That's great. That's just great. So nobody knows that the guy that's a peon never thinks he can get into mid-management and thinks all those mid-management guys are idiots and thinks they're worthless and thinks he does all the work and they don't do anything because he has no idea that at 5 o'clock when he punches his time card and he walks out, that guy's still working. At 9 o'clock at night, he's in an argument with his wife because he's answering the cell phone yet again. That guy in middle management thinks the C-level guy is just a jack-off the same way and doesn't know that he's doing it at midnight. And nobody understands each other. And the guy at the top thinks the guy at the bottom is just ungrateful because he doesn't know how hard he's working to put two or three kids through college because they never communicate. Teamwork. Put them all together, you build an unstoppable company. And if you look at some of the companies that have been successful in the most trying industries, they've adapted a lot of these principles. Not just this one, but many of them. Southwest Airlines. Walmart. You can bash Walmart all you want, but I talked to a guy that's a truck driver for Walmart. That's all he is, is a truck driver. But he's been there 20 years, and he can pick the phone up and call people in Benton and talk to C-level people in Walmart, even though he's a truck driver. They're not just successful because they have low prices, folks. There is that intercommunication. They probably don't do as good a job out of it as they could. I sure wish they'd work on those people that work on the registers and the floor a little bit more. But you get my point. Southwest Airlines, every single employee is an owner and a holder of Southwest Airlines stock. They have a common mission, a common goal. They are integrated. There's a level of equality between the very new person and the most senior it's not 100% equality. It can't be. There has to be a division of labor. But there is an equal footing. There is an equal value. There is an integration. So that doesn't matter if it's plants in your backyard or the way you run your home, the way you run your community, the way you run your team, the way we should be running our government. Amazing what these principles do. If we'll just examine them deeper than how to plant a seed. The next one, use small and slow solutions. And I put that on focus on what we can do first. Man, I mean, if you look at that one, and we have to start out, I guess, in the backyard. You're a new gardener, and you're thinking, how can I ever have a huge garden? Well, you've got to start out with that one little plot and start building from there. But build sustainably. Understand, when's the best time to plant a tree? Just like when's the best time to start investing? Now. The tree's going to take 10 years to produce. Well, then you better plant it today, not tomorrow, right? And if you wait five years, it takes 15 years to produce. 
And some people never plant the tree because it's going to take too long. Well, here's the thing. Those 10 years are going to pass whether or not you plant the tree. That's just reality. So you might as well plant it. And everything that we do, instead of trying to mow the land flat and immediately get a result so that next year we've got a thousand bushels of corn coming out of this land, we take a slower, longer-range approach. And maybe it takes us five years to get at the peak level of production. But at the end of those five years with that parcel of land, it's producing so much more yield than the monoculture uh, or bi, you know, biculture, if you want to call that two-crop type concept, will ever produce. Now, it's not producing more corn. It's the total yield, the total output, the sustainability of the output. And the amount of input goes down every year because we take that long, slow, forward-looking approach. This is another thing that can be seen anywhere. It can be seen, I'll let you figure it out for business. I'll tell you a real-world example of uh, where this applied to professional sports. In, in football, we have something that happens from time to time called an expansion team, where there's a, it's not a team like, you know, Houston moved to Tennessee and became, you know, the Tennessee Titans. That was a moving of a team. You have a brand new team. Uh, for instance, in Houston, after uh, the, they got rid of their team, they wanted a new one. So we got the Houston Texans, and that was an expansion team. Well, there was a team that came out in 1995 uh, called the Carolina Panthers. And they were coached by a guy named uh, Dom Capers, who was the former defensive coordinator for the Pittsburgh Steelers. And they went into a very aggressive uh, mode in building that team and very, very quickly uh, were able to get into uh, the play. In fact, in only their second year, they went to the AFC Championship and they played against uh, the uh, New England Patriots. And they lost that AFC Championship game, didn't get to the Super Bowl. But within one year, they went from not existing, almost like that, almost to the Super Bowl. And there's reason to believe, had they gotten past the Patriots, they would have won. Sounds like an amazing success. Not to Dom Capers, though, because the team rapidly began to decline over the years in its performance. And when he was asked about that, what he said was, I built the team too fast. I went too quick. I brought in too many people that were from free agencies, and I didn't put enough of a, a diverse team together that would have longevity, that would be able to have its core still be there five years, six years later. I brought a lot of great guys in, but a lot of them that were finishing up their careers, and they made the team great, but without enough youth and without enough mid-level, without that interaction, what we had was an all-star team uh, with some great rookies, instead of a core team that would become a dominant team for a long time to come. Well, that's the same principle at work, folks. That's Instead of trying to make that jackrabbit start and get to the finish line immediately, the long, slow solution. Again, all I'm trying to do is get you to take a new look at permaculture today. To understand the way that it interconnects throughout our lives. The way that it just simply becomes a troubleshooting tool. I've talked about this before, but I was a mechanic in the Army. And I can't remember exactly which line connects to the air valve for the rear brakes of a five-ton truck today. If you put me underneath one, it's been so many years, I'd be like, yeah, there's the valve. I don't know where that line goes anymore. Where at one time I could tell you every single line, what it did, where it functioned, where it came from, what it was attached to. 
That wasn't what I really learned as a mechanic, though. That was from the repetition of my job becoming proficient. What I learned, the skill, was troubleshooting. How to look at something that wasn't functioning properly and take an organized approach to track back and find the problem. That's what these principles allow you to do, but instead of on a truck, in anything. When we start to look at these principles and understand them and integrate them into our psyche, and then we start to realize when we look at a problem, what's missing, what's not there. Then we start to realize how powerful that they really are. The next one, um, use and value diversity. And to me, that means practice risk reduction. We've kind of talked about this, so I'll go short. I want to, I want to wrap this show up here pretty quick. I've got to go off and take my wife to, uh, to uh, her, uh, her appointment at the dentist here in just a few moments. But use and value diversity. And that is, again, we can look at it as having multiple crops in one plot instead of one crop in one plot. But we can also look at it with our investments of having gold, silver, real estate, cash, stocks, bonds, instead of having just stocks in just a deferred account. That doesn't make any sense at all. Because we don't have no diversity. Because we have no diversity, we don't have any reduction to our risk. So I change that to practice risk reduction. The next one is use edges and value the marginal. Again, use edges and value the marginal. And I change that one to seek alliances instead of conflicts. What we generally see anywhere that two components come together is a conflict. Management and labor. Woodlands and croplands. Water and land. Every time we see an edge, the human mind always looks and sees two things opposing each other and sees conflict. So then we start trying to decide which side we want to win, and then we try to overcome. If it's water, we damn it. If it's management and labor, if we're labor side, we strike. If we're management, we push down labor. And everywhere we look, in, you know, if, it, if, it's a, if it's woodlands overcoming cropland, then we push the woodlands back. We break out the chainsaw. Over and over and over again, we do the same thing, and it never seems to work. And then here's the irony. Those edges, those margins, are where the greatest production exists. If you go into a forest, into the deep darkness of the forest, there's a limited amount of productivity there. If you go out into a field, there's also a limited amount of productivity. If you want to see the real abundance, you go to the point where the forest meets the field, where it comes into that tangled, gnarled mess where you have the herbaceous layer, the vine layer, the underground rhizome layer, the, tree, the low tree and the high tree layer, and all of the other layers interacting in one place at the same time. And it looks like chaos, but it's where the blackberries grow. It's where the blueberries grow. It's where you'll find the abundance of acorns right just inside where the trees get the most solar exposure. It's where you'll find the muscadine grape growing. It's where you'll find all the abundance. If you're a fisherman, you know this instinctually. You go out in a boat. Do you go out to the middle of the lake, sit in the middle of the lake, and drop the line in? You know, when you're a little kid and they take you fishing, all you want to do is cast as far out as you can. If you can just cast far enough out, that's where the big ones are. Well, if you learn a little bit about fishing, you realize that's nonsense. You get a you know, the guy getting a, getting a bass boat, instead of going in the middle of the lake, he starts going along the edge of the lake knowing that the edge is where the fish are. Even when you see the guy and he looks like he's in the middle of the lake, he just looks like there's nothing, there's no edge out there. You know what's, you know what's usually out there? Some sort of underground structure. There's a ledge or a hump, and it's on that edge. It's on that point where one thing, water, conflicts with land. 
and instead of a flat place where they're equal, one is jutting, jut, you know, jutting into the other. An overledge, an underlay, a hump. That's where all the abundance with fish are. Or it's a huge mat of weeds, and you have weeds interacting with the water. And that's where the bait fish are. And that's where the chlorophyll is. And that's where the oxygenation is. And that's where the predators come. And that's where the abundance is. In your gardens, it's the same way. And in our businesses, in our lives, it can be the same way if we'll just understand the principle and act on it. The last one, use creativity and adapt to change. To me, I change that immediately to improvise, adapt, and overcome. That's a military, you know, coming out of me there. Improvise and adapt and overcome. But creativity and adapt to change, that's pretty much the reason it's the 12th principle. It's all of them rolled up in one. Instead of just looking at something and going, okay, this is a way to grow food, like permaculture, you start to realize this is a way to view and find and determine solutions. The beauty of creativity and adaptation is it's individual. See, the problem that we have in our society today, from one end to the other, is that there's conformity across the board. Every child goes to school, sits in a desk in a perfect row. Okay? Their, their names are called alphabetically for roll call. They're taught from the same book, by the same methodology, to take the same test, to go to the next same grade, over and over and over again. Then we send people off to work in an environment where everybody sits in a cubicle, it's 8 by 8 or 10 by 10 and everybody has one and they have the same computer and the same desk. And we wonder why we have unfulfilling lives. And then we grow our crops the same way. Every field is round or circular. It's irrigated. It's planted with one of the same four main crops. Every company takes the same philosophy toward delivering product to the marketplace. Research the market, determine a need, lower your cost of production and operations, lower your cost of distribution, market the hell out of it. Everything has become a formula, and creativity is laughed at. I'll tell you a secret. Part, a lot of the things that I do with the Survival Podcast, like the way I vet my sponsors, very creative. Let someone else, let my audience decide if my sponsors are worthy of being my sponsors. I gave that to two major corporations when I was a consultant, when I was taking clients, before I started doing this show. I presented it. I put it all together to great big PowerPoint so it would fit their boardroom mentality. And I showed it to them, and they went, huh, yeah, that seems risky to me. It's been one of the most successful things that's ever been done. I have sponsors in a line waiting. Can I please have, I'm sorry, I, I, I'm out of, I can't sell to you. I don't have any inventory. What if we have to turn somebody away? Good. Make an example of the crappy sponsor you won't take. The best will show up and beg to get in. Nope, won't do it. Why? The mentality that creativity is to be destroyed and patterns are to be ignored. And what we're supposed to do is look at everything fitting in a nice little spot. And that's why we go to our schools and everybody's in a perfect little row in desks. Dressed right, dressed just like a military formation. We, we teach conformity and then become frustrated at the result. We conform everywhere. We have to stop doing this. We have to leave room for individual interpretation and individual choice in all our aspects of life. And it starts in your backyard right now. You go out and you take these principles and you do whatever the hell you like with them. If you decide, I don't want this, don't do it. If you decide, I don't like this plant, don't grow it. If you decide, I don't want to put my money there, don't do it. 
If you decide there's too much risk with this, I want more diversity so I don't have the risk, tell your financial advisor to shut up and give you diversity. You know? And if he won't do it, get a new one. If your school isn't teaching your children the way you want them to learn, there's only so much you can do to affect change at that school, but you teach them what you want them to learn in addition to what they're already being told. You teach them to think for themselves. You take on the responsibility of a parent. You say, I can't afford a private school that would do things the way that I want, and I don't have the time to homeschool. Improvise, adapt, and overcome, damn it. They're your kids. Take the time to add to what they're learning. They'll learn their ABCs, their 123s, their fundamentals, their freaking phonics and how to read there. You can use the school system for that. Teach, you teach them how to live, think, be, and educate themselves. You teach them how to ask freaking questions. You affect change in the school by telling your student, your, your child, go back tomorrow and write the right answer down on the test. And then, when, if you finish before everybody else, John, turn the paper over on the back and write a rebuttal and say, hey, you know what? Mrs. Smith, I had to put this answer down. This is what you taught me, but here's what I think and here's what I believe about it. Consider this free extra credit. That's how you affect change. Creativity. And that, it goes from anything from a chicken house to a garden to a business to a school to a sports team to society to government. This is how we affect change. We do it by our own choices, though. If you don't want to do it the way I just described, you find your own way. You find what fits you and fits your lifestyle. But look at these principles. Learn these principles. Make them your own. Change the. That's why I, I didn't just change them to be clever and creative. I didn't change, observe and interact, to be a part of things. I did it because it fit me better. So I figured if it fit me better, it might fit you better. But if you want to change it to something entirely different, but you leave the core of the principle the same, that's fine. As long as you're not instructing a permaculture course... It doesn't matter. It's about permeating your own world with a way to improve it and a way to increase your sustainability. And if we would just use these 12 principles and make them part of our lives, we could head off a lot of disasters and we would be so robust when the disasters come. So it's a Friday. And it's going to be a day where you may not listen to this till Monday the way some of you listen to the show. But if you do listen to it on Friday... I want you to listen to it, and I want you to make it part of who you are. And I want you to go through your weekend. And I want you to think about these 12 things again as you go through your weekend. Observe and interact. Catch and store energy. Obtain a yield. Apply self-regulation and accept feedback. Use and value resources and services. Produce no waste. Design from patterns to details. Integrate rather than segregate. Use small and slow solutions. Use and value diversity. Use edges and value the marginal. And use creativity and adapt to change. And if you find one place to use one principle this weekend, consider it a successful weekend. If one time, even if you don't act differently, if you stop and think before you act, consider it a successful weekend. It's the first step. Again, I won't tell you what to do. I won't tell you where to do it. I won't tell you where to put things. I won't tell you where to put your money or your corn. But what I'll tell you is use these principles to define the life that you want for yourself when times get tough. Let me show you a better way.
Nobody up there cares. They're leaving 